Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azbem. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yuma, daf kaf aleph, page 21. So we have a beautiful, beautiful daf today, where really, you know, Yerdena, we said that we could really read the entire daf um, that would take too long, and it's not our mandate, but that's the kind of daf that it is. So we certainly encourage those of you who do not go through the entirety of the daf anyway, to you, this might be one of those where you would like to. Um, one of the things that jumps out at us from this stuff, of course, is the discussion of miracles that took place in the Beit HaMikdash and, you know, when B'nai Israel would come for Aliyah Taregel and also, you know, things that would happen within, from, from the temple from Jerusalem. So I'm just going to read some inside. Amar of Yehuda, Amar Rav, B'Sha'ash Yisrael olin l'regel, omdin sufin, umishtachavin revachim. So what would happen? Benes would come for the pilgrimage and they would stand fairly crowded together, but then when they would bow to do vidui, right? This is the Yom Kippur, when people would do Yishtachavaya, they would prostrate themselves as part of the of the service, right? So then somehow it was magic, you know, magic, um, when I mean magic, I mean a miracle, really, right? That they would be spaced so that nobody, and this is the comment, you know, um, that nobody would hear the vidui of the next person over. Meaning the idea is that even though everybody is coming together for Aliyah Taregel, this is still a very private moment in the Yom Kippur service in terms of the vidui itself is a, it's a confessional, right? So we nowadays, you know, we all sing together, whatever, at that same time, we might recite it under our breath. And many people are simply reciting the words of the Sidur. This is long before there was a fixed text in the Sidur. And I have to believe that people were mitvadeh, that they were confessing some of them surely must have had some kind of formal language, but but a lot of it, I'm sure, must have been some imp- improvisation over what they wanted to confess and where maybe you don't want your neighbor or friend or even relative to hear what you are confessing. So the the idea that there was like this, you know, inherent distancing while while they're all you know in the same space is a is both beautiful, but also um, it speaks to the privacy of the moment. <laughs> And that the crowd would they would extend eleven cubits, it says, a moat, right? Behind where the kaporet was. The kaporet again is the cover of the aron, which is basically where the Kodesh Kodashim is. Micah Amar. So the Gemara says, What are we what are we talking about? They're like, what is this about the eleven cubits? Which I think is a fine question, because I think it's what we would ask as well. This is what it means. So again, it says that even though they were, you know, all together there, when they would bow to do hishtachavaya, when they would prostrate themselves, it would they would be distanced from each other. And then this is, you know, this is the um, there's enough people there that they would kind of go as far as. 11 amot behind the kaporet. And this is considered one of the 10 miracles that, that occurred in the Beit HaMikdash. And we're going to list the rest of them as well. Um, but the idea here, again, is that the people still could not get too close to the Kodesh Kodeshim, right? They could only get, apparently, 11 amot. But even 11 amot is much closer than, they, than there would be anybody on a regular day. Um, okay. And also, one question I have here, Yerdena, if we're talking about the different areas of the Beit HaMikdash, I'm not entirely clear where the people were standing, that they're getting so close to the Kodesh Kodeshim, you know, different kinds of people could get in there, but other kinds of people, 
women specifically, for example, could not go as far in as the this crowd must have been. I'm not I'm not entirely clear on this. I would agree with you about that. I think women probably stood in one place. Men probably got a little bit closer. Um, and I assume people were where they were supposed to be. Right. Oh, that for sure. Meaning certainly there's no discussion of otherwise. Right. This is a matter of how the miracles worked. So here's the, the next the rest of them. So it's a, no woman miscarried from the smell of the karbanot, right? Meaning the idea being, or there's a recognition in Chazal that there are times that a pregnant woman might have cravings or yens for certain foods. And likewise, um, a certain, uh, what do you call it, aversion to certain other foods or certain other smells. And what if, and maybe this is medically sound, I don't know, but certainly there seems to be a concern that that kind of aversion could actually lead to a miscarriage. So the claim here is that this never happened with the smell of the Beit HaMikdash Karbanot. Um, and beyond that, the the Basar Kodesh, the meat of the Karbanot that was Kodesh, never became rotten. It never putrefied. Sorry. And they never saw a fly in the in the butcher house, in the in the slaughterhouse. Um, which again, really it, it's it speaks to everything we've been talking about, not only here, but also in, in Psachim. The idea there's a certain amount of bloodiness, right, that goes into these karbanot. And when you think about it, then you think, well, that must have been smelly and it must have been rotting and it must have been there must have been tons of bugs and flies and whatever. And the answer is no, that has been taken care of. There was a miracle and it was never an issue. Um, and there was never a case of a seminal emission of the Kohen Gadol on the night of, of, of Yom Kippur, meaning he was never rendered impure by becoming a Balkari from a seminal emission on that night. Which again, um, it's not something that couldn't have happened. So the fact that it didn't happen is the timing of it is considered a miracle. And there is never um, a psul, a disqualification in the Omer, in the Karbat Omer, which is a, a grain offering, or in the the grain bread offering of Shavuot, which is called or in the showbread, which we've discussed. We've just discussed this, right? That they would be able to have their privacy as they came to say Vidui before Hashem. And it never happened that a snake or a scorpion harmed anybody in Jerusalem, meaning in the whole of Jerusalem. Uh, presumably, right, it's a reassurance to anybody who might be coming for Aliyah Taregel to say, don't worry, there's no snakes and there's no scorpions that are going to bother you, that are going to harm you. And it never happened that people said, I don't have, there's no room for me at the inn. There's no place for me to stay overnight in, in Jerusalem. There was always enough housing for all of the people who came on Aliyah Taregel, which again, must be must have been a great, the reassurance that they would have a place to stay, right? That if they're debating when they, whether they should make, whether they should come on Aliyah Taregel to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, you know, what if there's nowhere to stay? What if there's no room at that inn? And the answer is no, not to worry. There will be a place for you. I've always loved this Mishnah. It's a very famous Mishnah from Perkei Avos. Um, and the particular Peregrine Perkei Avos, which appears, which you will all be learning in a week or two, um, uh, you know, if you're 
keeping up with that tradition of learning between Pesach and Shavuot, you know, lists lots of different, you know, three of things, four of things, tens of things. So this is a list of 10. Um, but what the Gemara does afterwards is very interesting. I mean, first, I just want to say, I always love this mission because this idea that there always is like enough room for everybody in Yerushalayim, I just think is particular, lovely, and always speaks to the centrality um, of Yerushalayim, you know, for us as a people. But the Gemara does something interesting from here. It then sort of starts to list other things that they think, you know, that they have heard of or know were also miracles. And then the question is, why was that not counted um, in this list of 10? And so they sort of try to go, you know, all these different ways, like, well, what about this miracle? What about that miracle? Um, you know, weren't there more miracles? And one miracle that they, uh, you know, the one that I like the best of how they sort of try to figure out why it was not uh, mentioned is they mentioned this miracle about these trees that Shlomo HaMelech planted um, and uh, that, you know, blossomed, uh, th- their fruit was always there. Um, right, it says Vito Lecha Bahama Rav Oshia Bishasha Beneshlomo Betamidash Natabo Komine Migadim, right? So Shel Zahab that he planted all of these, which literally says some golden um fruit trees. But it's this is also this is a Mishnah in Midot in Paragimel uh and there was sort of supposed to be this like golden grapevine that stood at the entrance um of the Hechal itself, by Yumotin Perutan Bismanan. And their fruit would always grow at the right time. And when the wind would blow, it would um, fall off. And then basically what the Gemara there explains is, is that the Kohanim would take the fruit and they would basically sell that fruit when it would fall. The, the falling off the fruit is considered to be a good thing. Shanat um, Mar, and they use a pasuk here uh, from Tehillim, um, which says, right? That it's like the fruit that rustles like that of Levanon. And live unknown very often is always a reference to uh, the Beit HaMikshash itself. When non-Jews would go into the uh, sanctuary, the, the trees wouldn't bloom. They would dry up. Right? And so here they quote another pasuk. This is a Nachum, uh, which says the flower of Lebanon is devastated. And in the future, Hashem will restore them to us. And so here they quote um, another pasuk. This is one from Yeshayahu, which says that, you know, eventually it will blossom and people will rejoice and there will be joyousness and song um, and the glory of Lebanon will be given. So they're taking this word Lebanon and sort of tracking it through Tanakh to show, you know, when it blossomed and the fruit fell, when did it get dried up? And that in the future, Lebanon, it will blossom again. But again, the Gemara wants to know, okay, why was this not listed as one of the miracles? And so it says, So miracles that sort of were in, that were permanently fixed, right? Something like these trees that I guess are part of the actual sort of structure itself. uh, Those weren't counted. They're only going to count miracles that sort of had to happen, uh, I guess, like sort of in a recurrent fashion that every time it happened was a miracle, though I'm not quite sure why that isn't part of the tree. Um, and then, um, you know, and then the Gemara goes on to say, so now that you have this concept of that sort of some of these permanent things in the Beit HaMikdash, I think it means like things that were part of the overall structure of the Beit HaMikdash itself. Um, the, those uh, like the Aron and the Kruvim, Nami, 
um, right, that, that were talked about before as well. These were also miracles that are part of objects. They're fixed as part of the Beit HaMikdash, and that's why we don't count them. This whole piece is like a little bit amusing to me because I think one of the things, um, whenever you see these lists that they do of like, you know, 10 or four or five, it, you know, the Gemara, it seems very tied to that number. Like, why couldn't you say, no, it was actually 12 or no, it actually was 11. Like, I always feel like these lists were way, because we say the Mishnah, you know, was meant to be sort of memorized and then transmitted orally. So why is it that they get so stuck on the number itself? And then the second piece is, is that we're talking about miracles and miracles sort of in a way inherently don't have rules. Um, but here <laughs> they're trying to sort of impose some type of like inherent logic on like, how would you, you know, sort of categorize miracles? And if miracles fall into a particular type of category, then we would list it as part of the 10. But if it does not fit into that particular category, it would not be part of the list of 10. So just the whole logic of this page um, is very interesting to me. Like, again, I don't know, and we'll see this pattern repeat itself, that sometimes there will be discussion about a number and the Gemara or the Mishnah is set on that number. That number has to hold true. I don't have a good answer for why that is. And maybe it just might be that it was a very strong Misora. And so they're not willing to say like, oh, no, actually, we don't hold by that because they're really going to say like, no, the Misora was really it was 10. But the applying of this internal logic to it or this internal structure, um, you know, it's interesting, but it's also sort of amusing because you're talking about miracles. And again, I don't think miracles hold by any rules. That's exactly why it's considered to be a miracle. I think that's a fair statement that miracles don't have rules in that way. But I think also that once there is such a big, you know, such a strong tradition of having lists that have numbers, uh, you know, to, I mean, a, a set number of items on that list, I think it would have been really dramatic, I guess, to deviate from that. Like, it's easier to debate which those 10 items should be than to say, well, let's just have 11 or 12, right? Meaning because they already have a tradition of there being 10. So then when someone says, well, what about this one? You forgot it's on your list. I feel like there's there comes like a certain formality that is preserved um, more readily than, you know, and then we could debate what those lists are, what, what's going to be on the list. We do this with Taryag Mitzvot. We do this with the 613. How many people of the Rishonim, I mean, went through to find all 613 and their lists are not identical, you know? No, not at all. And we'll get to that. That's a very famous Gemara Makos that we'll get to. Uh, right. So I think this numerology thing is something we should just pay attention to throughout our study of the DAF. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rinkus review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Ravani Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF and some of its listing of its beautiful miracles that took on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.